As our narration opens this morning, David is getting older. He's in the waning years of his kingship. And one wonders what will become of the kingdom of Israel after David is gone. How crucial is David to the kingdom's continued success? There will be many challenges yet ahead. How will they be met? As the narrative opens, Israel is facing yet another battle against the Philistines. Nothing new there. However, this time, things do not go as expected. Again, David is getting older. And David almost loses his life in this battle. This and the ensuing battles teach us important lessons concerning David and his kingship, especially concerning how crucial is David to the continuance of the kingdom. Well, first, we learn that David was not invincible in and of himself. David was not invincible. David became tired in the midst of the battle and was defenseless. If you look at verse 15, there was war between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. David encountered a rather formidable foe. He's an awesome opponent. His name is Ishbi Benab. David's opponent was huge, one of the descendants of the giants. David's opponent was strong, says, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze. That would be equivalent to about seven and a half pounds. Probably refers, refers to the spearhead. And you can imagine the strength it would take to be able to chuck a spear like that at any kind of distance with any kind of force. So he was strong. And David's opponent was well equipped and accomplished, for it says in verse 16, and who was armed with a new sword. Literally, the Hebrew reads, he was belted anew. He was belted anew. Most people think that belt was a sheath for the sword, but perhaps this aspect of being belted anew also speaks of an award that might have been granted to him that he got a special sword for his military prowess. We don't know that for sure, but certainly he is accomplished and well-equipped. And perhaps most significantly, David's opponent was relentless. He was intent on killing David. For it tells us at the end of verse 16 that he thought to kill David. That is, that he was fixated on David as he went into this battle. He was not thinking about other soldiers. He was not thinking about other things. His goal, his intent was to do David in. That's what David was facing. And then we have the outcome of the encounter between David and Ishbanab. David received help, tells us in verse 17. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid. So here is this David. He's weary, he's tired, he's defenseless. This giant is hovering over him, ready to kill him. Well, Abishai rises to the occasion, and he comes in and he helps David and David's life is spared, verse 17, uh, and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Now, as we think about this battle, David's situation had changed. Previously, David had been the great deliverer 
of the people. Such would no longer be the case. Instead of David being the great deliverer of the people, now they had to be watching out for David's back. Rather than he being the protector, he needed the protection. David was not invincible. David was not strong to the end. David grew more weary, more tired as he aged. Secondly, we learned that no matter how important David was, David was not indispensable. David was not indispensable. As a result of this near-death encounter, David was barred by his soldiers from going to war any longer. If you look at verse 17, it says, But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Now these words, then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle. David, stay home. The battlefield doesn't belong to you any longer. Now earlier, you may remember back in chapter 18 of 2 Samuel, there is again a war that is to be struck. Uh, Absalom had rebelled against David, and so there was going to be an ensuing battle. And as they were getting preparations for the battle, we read this in 2 Samuel chapter 18 concerning David's participation. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go with you. But the men said, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. Now in that instance, this was a little different situation. Absalom was rebelling against David and wanting the kingship. And so everyone's attention was focused upon David. And the men said to David, David, you are worth thousands of us. David, you stay back and we will fight this battle because of how important David was to them. But this instance is a little bit different. For on that occasion, it was all about David and wanting to kill him because Absalom's rebelling against him. This is more general of fighting against the Philistines. And this time, the reason they want David to stay home is because he's weak, because he's frail, because he's not going to be a great help in battle, and he is too important a figure to risk. He can no longer fight the way he used to. And the loss of David was viewed as insurmountable. But what we find in our text is that David continues to grow in the eyes of his men. His significance continues to increase. For in 2 Samuel chapter 18, it said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. Half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. 
Now that's a pretty lofty view of somebody's value. You're worth 10,000 of us. But as high a view as that is, David grew even more important in the eyes of the people. For David had come, had come to the point where he was viewed as indispensable. Indispensable. If David died, the kingdom would die with him. If David lost his life in the battle, then Israel, as they had known it, was over. Look at verse 17. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine, killed him. David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle. And here's the reason. Lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Now let me unpack that for you. In Hebrew, the idiom of quenching the lamp or snuffing out one's light is an expression for dying, and not just dying, but the hopelessness of continuation that goes along with it. For example, Proverbs 13, 9, the light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out, that they will end, the life will be over, and there will be no hope, there will be no expectation. Proverbs 20, verse 20, if one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. Again, he will die and there will be no hope, no, no blessedness to follow, uh, no good will come of it. Here, it's saying that, David, if you go out to battle, there's a fear that the lamp of Israel is going to be put out. Again, if David dies, the kingdom dies with you. For I would point out at the end of verse 17, it doesn't say, David, your lamp may be put out. It says, the lamp of Israel will be put out. Not just, David, you may die, but David, Israel might be lost. David, if something happens to you, what's going to happen to the kingdom? Where are we going to be? How could we survive? You better stay back and we'll protect you and we'll watch over you because we don't want to lose our nation. We don't want to lose our kingdom. The thought is they had to keep David and protect him no matter what. They viewed him as indispensable. However, David was not indispensable. Though one day David would die, the lamp of Israel would not go out. When David dies, the lamp of Israel does not go out. In fact, we have the repeated promise of God that specifically when David dies, the lamp doesn't go out. Just listen to these references. 1 Kings 11, verse 36. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. 1 Kings 15, 4. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him, 
and establishing Jerusalem. 2 Kings 8 and 19, Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. 2 Chronicles 21 verse 7, Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David, and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. God could not have made it clear that when David dies, the lamp goes on. When David dies, the kingdom passes. When David dies, God will raise up kings after David. David is not indispensable. The kingdom was going to go on. Third, we learn that David was not irreplaceable. That David is not irreplaceable. In the next section, there's an ode to David's men. So uh, let's first uh, look at this section. Let me read it entirely, and then we'll go back and make some observations. 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 18. After this, after this, <coughs> that is after David's near death and after they had determined that he should not go out to battle anymore. And interestingly, there's nothing more said about that battle. Everything we need to know is simply that, that this was the end to David's fighting career and that David had almost lost his life. That's what we're supposed to focus on. That's supposed to, we're supposed to keep in mind. But what happens next? Well, verse 18. After this, there was again war with the Philistines of Gob. Then Sibachiah, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jari Oregim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. There was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. He was also descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. And then a summary statement, verse 22. These four were destroyed, descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Now, as you read through verses 18 to 22, there's a, a large degree of repetition. And the repetition is there for a point. Uh, it is the central idea that we are to see the repetitive nature of what is taking place. First, there is a repetition of war against the Philistines. Look at verse 18. And after this, there was, again, war with the Philistines. Verse 19. And there was war again with the Philistines. Verse 20. And there was war again at Gath. Okay? So, there's war again. There's war again. There's war again. Nothing new. Perpetual, ongoing war. Secondly, there is the repetition of a fierce foe that had to be faced, who was a, a giant or a descendant of the giants. Look at verse 21. And Ishabinab, 
one of the descendants of the giants. Verse 18, end of the verse, who was one of the descendants of the giants. Verse 19, Goliath the, the Gittite. He was a giant. Verse 20, and there was again war at Gath. There was a, a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot, 24 in number, who was also descended from the giants. So you have continual war, repeated war, and repeated giants. But there's also a repetition of the defeat of each of these giants. Look at verse 18. Then Sibachai, the Hushite, struck down Saph. Verse 19, and Elhanan, the son of Jari Oregon, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite. And let me just give you a quick aside here because uh, so much is written about this. Uh, this is not a contradiction of 1 Samuel where David is said to have killed Goliath and that this is somebody else being attributed with that act. We know that. Verse 22 tells us at the end of verse 22 that uh, they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servant. So David had killed a giant. That's Goliath. A parallel passage in 1 Chronicles uh, sheds much more light. 1 Chronicles 20 verse 5 reads as follows. It's the same account. It's a parallel idea. And there was war again with the Philistines and Elhanan the son of Jair struck down Lami the brother of Goliath the Gittite. And so there's a lot of conjecture and uh, one of the thoughts is that perhaps Goliath is a family name just like my name is Reed and so we can talk about killing a reed, and then somebody else can kill a reed. It isn't the same reed. Uh, it's the fact that they're killing someone in the family, and it's talking about descendants of the giants, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think that's, that's a very likely uh, scenario, but the point is, for this morning, is that all of these giants are slain, and they're slain by different people. So the summary takeaway from this section is verse 22. These four were descended from the giants in Gath. In the end of verse 22, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Now we're talking about the fact that David was viewed as irreplaceable. David's most notable triumph, David's supreme accomplishment, what David is most notable for is killing Goliath. That's his credentials. That's what distinguished David. And, of course, we have that incredible account, and we've looked at it in months past when we were working through 1 Samuel. And down to this day, down to this day, if anybody knows anything about David, if there's a, a Sunday school narrative, if you know the name of David, you know the story of Goliath. You may not know much out about David, but you know that David was a young man who went out and killed this, this giant Goliath. 
And he was held in incredibly high esteem. Wow. David, the giant slayer. But what we're to learn from this account is that David isn't the only giant slayer. David isn't the only one that had done such a remarkable deed. In fact, we're listed, and then given the summary in verse 22, these four were descended from the giants. These were just as formidable a foe. And in the middle, you have one that appears to be even more formidable than the original Goliath, for he has six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. He's viewed as this monster, really, who comes out and he is killed. So David is not the only giant facer, and he's also not the only giant slayer. In this passage, there are repeated constants, such as war, time and time again. And again there was war, and again there was war, and again there was war. And you have repeated challenges. Again there was a giant that was the descendant of the giants. Again there was a giant who was a descendant of the giant. Again there was a giant who was the descendant of a giant. So you have those, those constances. But the variety, the variation, comes in the one who slays the giant, the one who enters into that war. And on each occasion, it's someone different. Not the same individual. Someone different. They, too, are able to do what David had done. David was greatly used of God. But David was not invincible. David was not indispensable. And David was not even irreplaceable. For even in David's own lifetime, when he can't go out to war, there are people to go out to war and who are able to do what David did when he went out to battle. Now, this passage does not stand in isolation. And I've been trying to show you in recent weeks the inner reaction, the, the interplay that goes on between these, these various chapters and how intricately connected they are. One of the things that we want to see in the connection is that what David had done he did not do alone. David had help. Now, in the first occasion when David goes out to fight Goliath, that's pretty much David and Goliath one-on-one. -on -one. But in the kingship, what David had done, he had not done alone. And if you jump over with me to 2 Samuel chapter 23, we have a listing starting at verse 8 of David's mighty men. And these are incredible individuals who fought and engaged in tremendous heroics, a lot of skill, a lot of ability. 
they are awesome individuals, if you will. But if you notice the way in which the introduction to these mighty men is given, it tells us in verse 8, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Whom David had. These are a listing of all the people, not all in the sense of exclusive or all-inclusive, but here is an example of the kinds of military leaders, the, the kinds of combatants he had, and I hope you're kind of familiar with this passage. But the point is that David had an army when he went up against the Philistines. He didn't go by himself. And in verse 9 of chapter 3, uh, excuse me, 23, 2 Samuel 23, verse 9, and uh, next to him among the three mighty men was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the son of Ahoy. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. The point is that David had company. David had help. David hadn't done it on his own. That's important when you reflect upon what an individual is able to achieve, especially when you think of a kingdom, when, when you think of this incredible success that David had. And as they're elevating David and putting him on a pedestal, the word of God points out that David had loads of help. David had loads of help. This isn't just what David did. This is what the people had done. And what David and his mighty men had done, they hadn't done alone either. It isn't just that David had this incredible army. But the ultimate point of chapters 21 through 24, and we'll see it especially when we get to chapter 24, but the ultimate point is of what God has done. For, look at 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 10. 2 Samuel 23, 10. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. But the Lord had brought about a great victory that day. Look at the end of verse 12 of 2 Samuel 23. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. So as we work our way through the text, we find that ultimately God is honored and glorified for God is the one who has given them this great victory. And lodged in between chapters 21 and chapter 23 is this psalm. Turn with me to chapter 22. Starting at verse 1. And of course, this is the next verse to our text. We ended with a summary verse. Next verse is 2 Samuel 22, 1. 
And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies from the hand of Saul. He said, Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I will take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. You saved me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord to my God. I called from his temple, he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. And we can go on this whole psalm that is given to us in 2 Samuel chapter 22 is in praise of God's deliverance and help. That is to be our focal point. That's what we are to see. That God ultimately was the source of David's strength and the source of the strength of the mighty men. And it is ultimately God who gave the victory. And because of that truth, the lamp of Israel would not go out. As God had promised, continued victory. God had promised that the kingdom would go on. People come and go, but God is eternal, and his word is eternal. So what are some of the takeaways? Well, first of all, no one is invincible. No one is indispensable. And no one is irreplaceable. But having said that, we can come to some wrong conclusions. And that is, first of all, that people don't matter. That people don't matter. God uses individuals to accomplish his will and purpose. God used David and others to defeat the Philistines. David, God did not just send down hail from heaven. God did not do this without means. God did not do this without instrumentality. God uses people. So there is an important balance to maintain as we think of mankind's role in the kingdom of God. We must avoid the overestimation of the value and worth of an individual so that they become invincible or indispensable or irreplaceable. That's wrong. On the other hand, we can underestimate the value and the benefit and the usefulness of God's people. When we are given accounts, we're given names of individuals that God had used to defeat these giants. And then we have the chapter 23 with the mighty men and their exploits and their abilities and their talents and their gifts and all that they were able to accomplish because of the grace of God. So, 
Let's begin with the idea that we should not minimize the importance of people's contributions to the kingdom of God. We should take note of and admire people's unique abilities, talents, gifts, dedication, fearlessness, commitment, hard work, faithfulness, and accomplishments. David's mighty men were really outstanding in their abilities and talents and gifts. David's taking on Goliath certainly was noteworthy. It's inspiring. It's courageous. It deserves praise and celebration. It is not wrong to honor individuals for their service to God. Here's the mind-boggling thought. Even God, even God will bestow honor and praise on his servants. God will single out at the time of judgment the praiseworthy works of individuals. We all long for, I hope, that day when we stand before God and hear the assessment, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And I think that joy of the Lord is directly related to the statement of having been a faithful servant who have done well. I can't imagine anything more wonderful. You know, we tend to long for praise. We tend to long for honors. We like to receive letters, sweaters, trophies. We like to receive blue ribbons. We like to be singled out. We like to be noticed. But imagine standing before God and God saying to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And here's a crown for you to wear. If God singles out and points out the faithfulness of his people, how appropriate it is for us to acknowledge, point out, give thanks, praise for the faithfulness of God's people and the gifts that God has given them and the abilities that God has granted them and the way that God has used them to accomplish his purpose and his will. So the balance is we don't want to underestimate the importance of people in serving God's kingdom and doing his work. The flip side is we don't want to overestimate the value and the importance of people in doing God's work. We honor people, but we worship God.
We don't worship anyone. Our confidence is not in people, it's in God. All accomplishments are viewed in the sight of God's enablement. What these individuals were able to do was because of a God who was with them and helped them. God is to be worshipped. He is the only one who is invincible. He is the only one who is irreplaceable. God alone is to be worshipped. In this account, the constant is the Lord. A lot of different giants, a lot of different people. But it's the same God. People come and go. But God is the constant. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will never be replaced. There will never be another God. There will never be another entity that with whom we, we deal. The kingdom will not die with David. God will not let the lamp go out. If we feel that we can't survive when anyone passes off the scene, we have placed our eyes on the wrong entity. No matter how valuable, no matter how useful, no matter how beneficial an individual has been, they are not invincible. They are not irreplaceable. God can and does and has promised to raise up people in their stead. We are thankful for those whom God uses, but we're not dependent upon them. And we rejoice that God will use others. The kingdom goes on. One of my favorite Thoughts in the New Testament is the promise of Jesus that says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is the New Testament promise of the lamp won't go out. The lamp won't go out. I will build my church. That's our hope. That's our confidence. That's our joy as God uses people in our midst to accomplish his purpose and his will.